Hey friends, Gil here. I wanted to add a trigger warning because this interview contains, oh, just a cornucopia of things that might set you off. There's disordered eating, suicidal ideation, panic attacks, and for those with emetophobia, mm, lots of vomit. Just thought you should know. All right, let's do this. His name is Gil, and he's mentally My name is Gil Kruger, and on this show, I go deep with content creators on their struggles with mental health. On this season of Mentally Gil, we're focusing on anxiety and burnout. This week, TikTok musician Austin Archer enters the chat. We talk about how his anxiety affects his work and his ability to do normal human tasks such as eating, going to the dentist, and even flying. Hi, my name is Austin Archer, and I'm an actor, singer-songwriter, content creator. Austin is one of my favorite creators on TikTok. He has gained a ton of popularity for his often-pointed comedy songs. They're almost like musical clapbacks. He also made the theme song and ad break music for this very show that you're listening to right now. Austin's a true ally of marginalized communities and has no problem getting political at the expense of seeming, quote-unquote, brand-friendly. Take, for example, his song, Nobody Cool Likes Tucker Carlson. Oftentimes, his songs are performed as responses to bigoted people. His biggest hit on TikTok was posted in reply to a conservative guy who made fun of women who state their pronouns. Congratulations, that was one of the stupidest things that I've ever seen. The tune was so catchy that our Lord and Savior Brene Brown shared it on her Instagram. Anyway, enough gabbing. Let's go to the interview. How would you describe your anxiety? <laughs> it's my constant companion. It's there every day. And it has been pretty much my whole adult life. I, I see it as just, it's sort of like this, uh, this just sort of resting norm of like a buzz and a hum that's always there. And if I choose to like pay attention to it, it I can real I can feel it at any, at any moment. You know, if I choose to be like, I wonder, how's my anxiety doing today? There it is, you know? And so it's really a thing where, like, I can sort of manage to get through uh, the day by not thinking about it. If I'm just uh, doing my my regular tasks or hanging out with a friend or something like that. But, like, the second that I'm aware of it, it's it's right there. It's always just, like, ready to go full blast. Can you talk a little bit about where you grow up? Do you think there's any connection to your anxiety today? I grew up in uh, Sandy, Utah, which is a suburb of Salt Lake City. All suburbs of Salt Lake City are overwhelmingly LDS and Mormon. My little neighborhood was my church. LDS stands for the Church of Latter-day Saints, which practices a faith we know as Mormonism. Austin grew up in the town of Sandy, Utah, in a neighborhood called Willow Creek. His parents weren't strict. In fact, they even let him watch The Simpsons and R-rated movies. But you could say all roads led to the church. It was all the people that I went to church with on Sunday. 
My family is LDS, and I was raised in the Mormon church. And, you know, being raised that way, feel it, anything feels normal because you're just in the water that you're in. And uh, I didn't think that I was part of a 19th century American cult. I, <laughs> I, I thought that I was just part of like a, you know, garden variety Christian religion. You're not aware as a child of the programming that's going in that's telling you that like there is so much on the line with your behavior. There is so much at stake. Like you are holding the fate of your eternal family in your hands all the time with your decisions. So you have a personal stake in making sure that your family is going to be able to be together in paradise forever together. And if you mess that up, you're going to be the reason why the family is incomplete and grieving for eternity, that they're not all together. So it's an immense amount of pressure to put on a person and to put on a child to be like, if you mess up and you're and you're the bad one, then mm-hmm. you're going to be the reason why the family isn't together. And no one really says it like that, but that is directly the story. That is the story. So there's a lot of guilt and shame. There's typical things that come with any religion, uh, you know, uh, sex shame and masturbation, like things like that. Like they, they tell you that masturbating is like this really, really awful thing. And that like anything related to sex is just lathered in shame. And so obviously every boy in the church and, you know, just people in general, boys and girls raised in, in that church who have a natural sex drive, grow up feeling immense shame about that. And, uh, feeling very isolated too, because you feel it's this thing that no one talks about. So you feel like you're the only one who's dealing with this like perverse brain that you have, this these perverse desires, these unquenchable carnal thirsts and hungers that you have. And then you grow up and realize that everyone was dealing with it and that you were made to feel ashamed for no reason. All your All of your shame converts into resentment and anger. And it creates a whole other slew of problems. Do you tie any of your anxiety to that? I do. You know, I'm not I'm not sure exactly how, but this is something that I've been thinking about more and more lately. I've been um, out of the Mormon church for about 15 years, and so I don't think about it very often. And I like to think about it as, as like just this past version of myself and this past life that doesn't really hold any sway over my current life. But lately, it's been really presenting itself a lot. Like I had an opportunity to move back to Utah recently, and like I... I was like adamantly against it. And what it actually is, is I have a lot of unresolved trauma from being raised there and being raised in the Mormon community. And I think that it's stuff that I haven't actually spent a lot of time looking at. And so I'm hoping to look at some of that in therapy soon and see if I can unpack it a little bit more. But yeah, I don't see how my anxiety wouldn't be wrapped up in the way that I was raised. Austin's anxiety started to present physically when he was in college. He was 18 years old and a freshman theater major at Weber State. It started in college, and I would wake up extremely nauseous in the morning, and I uh, to the point where like I couldn't go to class, and I I would vomit after eating a lot. It was characterized by a lot of inability to keep food down and to eat, and a lot of vomiting and a lot of like physical nausea and sickness. And I, w- I weighed like 115 pounds and I, I looked very gaunt and unwell. 
And any time I would go to eat, it would it would kick in. Like I would be in the middle of eating and I would just be like, I can't keep this food down. So it was sort of like an involuntary bulimia because it certainly wasn't about a body image issue or anything like that. It was it was just like I, for some reason, eating was a, a trigger for me. I would become extremely anxious when I would eat. So yeah, it started out as like that kind of physical sickness where it was, you know, I'd get clammy and sweaty and nauseous. What are you thinking when you vomited, but then also after, like, how did you feel? When I was about 19 years old, probably 20, 20 is probably where it started. I started vomiting usually in the mornings uh, when I would wake up and then kind of anytime I would eat, I would become physically ill and really anxious and once I had done it, it, I felt a little bit of relief. It actually felt kind of good to like get the unrest that was inside of me out and to sort of purge a little bit. I think I feel the same way that a lot of people feel before you vomit, which is you don't want to. You can feel it building up and you're like, no, 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 please, come on, no. And especially because I was nervous about the fact that I wasn't keeping food down. For a long time, I couldn't keep food down. So anytime I would feel it coming on, I'd be in the middle of eating something And I would feel it coming on and I'd be like, no, like I need this food. Please don't. I would try everything I could to keep it down. And then I would wind up running to the bathroom and I would kind of try my best until it felt like it was imminent and until it felt like it was it was right up in the three quarters up my esophagus. And then I would run to the bathroom and and give it up and usually feel better afterward for a little bit but also feel very disappointed and ashamed that I wasn't able to keep it down and that I couldn't get a get a handle on this, you know, and, and I would feel scared that I wasn't going to be well if I couldn't eat. Did anybody know about this? Yeah, my parents knew about it and friends knew about it. I've always been very vocal about what was going on in my life with mental health and that kind of thing. I've, I've never been shy about telling people about what's going on. Do you recall, like, what you might have been thinking that would cause the food to come up? I don't really have an answer for that. It seemed to be happening involuntarily and and independent of my will. What I was thinking was, please, no, not this again. Like, please, for the love of God, not this again. Like, what is the deal? How come I can't just eat? Like, leave me alone. But I wasn't thinking like, oh, I'm so nervous for midterms or, oh, I'm so nervous for the play that's coming up or I, I just would be minding my own business and then all of a sudden it would be like, Oh, you thought you were enjoying that sandwich? Nope. Uh, you're gonna you're you're about to throw up and and have a big uh, rush of anxiety. And I'd just be like, No, why? Leave me alone. So mostly, what I was thinking was just like, Please, God, not this again. Why that? Why do I have to keep doing this? And then over the years, I learned to suppress the vomiting. For a while, it just felt like I was going to throw up, but I, I wouldn't. I, I learned some tools, some kind of distraction tools that I, would, I could go to in a pinch. I started doing this thing called EFT tapping, where you tap uh, different kind of pressure points and energy points on your body, and it sort of distracts your brain. And then I also learned some like mantras and some breathing techniques. And then like in a pinch, if I'm in like a real dire situation, I would just do things like put my hand in my pocket and pinch my leg or something, you know, like grab, grab onto something Mm. on my body and like pinch it really hard or, you know, hold ice cubes in my hand. Something that's like a really like big sensation that can sort of draw my nervous system to that area to try to distract from the alarms that are sounding everywhere else in, in my chest and in my stomach and stuff. 
but I was able to sort of stop vomiting so much. Once I did that, I started having a different kind of panic attack where I knew I wasn't going to throw up, but it started being characterized by like tunnel vision. Hey man, you don't look so good. You know, my peripheral vision would start to close in and I could only kind of see what was directly in front of me, not even very well. Everything kind of shakes. Just and uh, my hands start to shake and everything starts sounding like static. My ears fill up with a static noise and my brain is like screaming, like it's on fire. And so it's hard to hear people outside of my head who are talking to me because there's just like screaming and noise in my head. I started dealing with that at a a certain point by like telling people about it as it was happening because it sort of did this trick where it would sort of like externalize it. Because it was this thing that was like inside of my body. So I would just tell them, I'd be like, yeah, right now my eyes are sort of kind of like everything's Mm. sort of wobbling. And I'd like ask them, can you look at my eyes? Are my eyes shaking? And they'd be like, no. And I'd be like, okay, it feels like they are. And then I would tell them like, I have a lot of static in my head right now. And I I would explain to them what I felt. And it would sort of help to name it and externalize it and take it from an internal experience to an external experience. Austin spent four years at Weber State, but didn't end up graduating. He was living in Salt Lake City and in demand as an actor. Unfortunately, his panic attacks continued. And I've had all different kinds. I've had panic attacks that came on slow, you know, that I feared for a week in advance, and they, they slowly built on. And I've had panic attacks that were all of a sudden that hit me like a freight train, where I it felt like someone jammed an epinephrine shot into my heart and pumped me full of adrenaline. But most of the time, I have a shortness of breath, and things sound static and the tunnel vision, and just the overwhelming dread and fear. Can you talk about any of your, um, like, your other anxiety triggers? So for a long time, eating, for whatever reason, was one. That doesn't seem to be as much anymore, but if I am in a particularly anxious state, eating is hard. Like, if I'm um, working on a commercial uh, or on a movie, uh, my first day on set, it usually it'll be hard for me to eat. It'll be hard for me to eat breakfast or hard for me, you know, like I have to get comfortable on set first before I can eat. I can't just show up to work and just like eat a breakfast burrito. And it's really annoying because a lot of times on set, they have like a really cool like person there catering and making really nice food. And it's like, you know, free, good food and I can't enjoy it. I have to like get comfortable first. So doing my job sometimes and wanting to do a good job can be a trigger for me. Traveling is uh, is a trigger, uh, not by car, but by plane. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome aboard Anxiety Airlines. Your safety is our top priority. In the event of a water landing, please remain in your seat, lean forward, and kiss your ass goodbye. I have a hard time on planes. I uh, get very motion sick, and then the motion sickness triggers the anxiety, and it's a vicious cycle of, I'm sick because I have bad equilibrium, And now I'm anxious because I'm sick on a pressurized cylinder in the sky and I can't get out of the pressurized cylinder in the sky. And if I need to throw up or if I'm having a medical emergency, there's nothing that anyone can do about it because we're in a pressurized cylinder in the sky. And uh, so the being sick on a plane causes me to be anxious and knowing that I most likely will get sick on the plane causes me to be anxious the entire day before and the day of. So that is a trigger. Performing is a trigger. When I have to perform live in front of an audience at the day of a performance, I don't eat. Or if I do eat, I eat very light. Mm. It's hard to eat. Going to the dentist 
is a big one, which I thought I didn't know until this this last year. I thought I could handle the dentist. My whole life I've been going to the dentist and getting things done. And I thought I actually kind of liked the dentist because I, I'd get the nitrous oxide and they'd throw some laughing gas on me and I would sit there and I'd have a good time. I'd be high and it was fun. Um, and I'm sober now. And this last year I started going to the dentist sober and it was a whole other thing. And, and I, I wound up having to do a bunch of work uh, over this last year because I hadn't been to the dentist in like six years because I couldn't afford dental insurance because uh, America is such a cool country when it comes to uh, healthcare and the way that they structure it. I wound up having to do, do all these procedures. And the first one that I went in for, I thought, okay, I'm going to do this no, no nitrous oxide or anything like that. They're just going to shoot me with the Novocaine and I'm going to get numbed up and we're going to do this root canal. And they gave me the Novocaine and they came into the room and were getting ready to do the whole procedure. And this was one of those where I got hit by the freight train. And out of nowhere, it was like uh, a freight train of adrenaline hit my heart and I started convulsing in the chair and like loud sobbing. And they had a dental dam in my mouth. So my mouth was open, pried open. And I just was tr begging them to, to pull the thing out, screaming in the chair and shaking and convulsing. And they pulled it out and I just sat there and just sobbed and shook in this chair for about 10 minutes uh, intensely and then told them that they were like, okay, they were like, do we need to call an ambulance? And I was like, no, I just need to like get this out. And then we didn't do it. And I had a face full of Novocaine. Found out later that Novocaine has epinephrine in it. And if you, it can hit the blood and can shoot adrenaline into your heart. And so that's what happened. But since I'd had that experience, I couldn't bring myself to go back to the dentist to get these other procedures done that I needed to get done. So I wound up having to just pay extra and be knocked out every time I went in. They had to put me under with propofol on a propofol drip because I, I couldn't wow. bring myself to just sit in the chair. And I went back to get it done and I sat outside the office for an hour crying um, and shaking. And they had to like, this woman who worked there had to come out and hold me by the hand and walk me back and I just was shaking violently as she walked me back to the chair and they sat me down and, I, and they were just knocking me out. That's all they were doing. And I just was, I couldn't get in the office. And so now I still, every time I go in, even though I know I'm usually doing stuff that's very standard and and simple and uh, easy, I, it's it, it, it takes a lot out of me to get in there and get in the chair. Wow, yeah, I totally get the dental thing. Let's go to an ad break, cause making this show ain't free. That was the ad now, back to our show. Austin started to find success as an actor in roles at prominent Salt Lake theater companies and in TV shows like Mindhunter. But his anxiety started to become a problem at work. I think you, you said you had like a panic attack in front of like a thousand people or something. Can you tell me that story? Yeah. Uh, in my mid to late 20s, I started, my, my panic attacks started to become a problem because they started to affect my acting work. And, and you know, my whole life I've been a an actor, mostly on stage. And I get nervous for performing in front of an audience like anyone would. I get butterflies, but Usually once I'm out in front of the audience, it all goes away and I'm very like present and zen and in the moment and I'm able to perform. Maybe 2015 or 2016, I was in a production of 
Newsies at Pioneer Theater Company, which is a regional theater in Salt Lake City, you know, like one of the premier regional theaters in the Western United States, really good theater. And I've, I've always felt very fortunate to get to, to perform there and work there whenever I work there. It's a great place to work. And I was doing this show and I was playing Crutchy and the show opens with me and Jack, Jack Kelly, uh, singing a duet of Santa Fe. It's different than the movie. And we were heading out on stage and right as the lights are going down and the curtain speech is happening, I start feeling the early signs of a panic attack. And I know them by heart at this point. I've had so many panic attacks in my life that they're unmistakable to me. My, my palms start to tingle and start to feel like I'm, I'm over-oxygenating, like I can't, like I'm breathing too much. And my, my ears start to go static and that intense buzz and hum in the chest and in the nervous system where everything just starts feeling like it's boiling, uh, starts coming on. We're on this big set piece that we're on top of and it's being wheeled out onto the stage as this is happening. And I'm thinking, oh my God, no. And it's a sold out crowd and this, the theater seats about, uh, sits about a thousand people lights come up and I look over at my scene partner and he's talking to me and I'm like, I can't hear anything he's saying. And I'm just like, oh no, <laughs> like this is the, like, it's just like, like, you know, red alert, like the worst possible time that this could happen. And it's full on happening. There was no time for me to slow it down. There was no time for me to like run through my mantras or like try some of my grounding techniques. It was by the time the lights were up, I was fully in it. So I put my hand in my pocket and I grabbed onto my leg and I started pinching my leg really hard. And I just told myself, you know your lines. When he stops talking, just say, mm -hmm. just say the line that you're supposed to say. So every time he would stop talking, I would just say my next line. And I couldn't look at him. I have, I, I have a hard time looking at people at, at their faces when I'm having a panic attack because it makes it mm -hmm. worse. I feel like they can see it. And, uh, and so I, like, I kept like looking away and like my eyes were darting all over the place. And we made it through the scene. And it's so interesting. I'm out there and my brain is screaming at me going, get off the stage, get off the stage, get off the stage. Like, go to the bathroom. We're going to throw up. Like, get off the stage. Like, we're, we can't be here. And I'm like, that's not an option. I can't. I'm on top of a 15-foot set piece. I can't just run off the way. And also, like, we're here. We're doing it. Like, everyone here paid 40 to $50 a ticket to be here, and, and it's happening. We made it through the scene, and we got off stage, and he instantly asks me, he goes, are you okay? And I said, no. And he goes, the look on your face was weird out there. And I was like, I'm having a panic attack. And he was like, he was like, what should we do? I was like, I don't know. And so I just told the stage manager backstage, I said, hey, I'm having a panic attack. I don't know if we're going to need my understudy to like go on at intermission or something. They were like, what can we do to help you? I was like, I was like, let's get me some water. And I just need to like talk to someone back here about what's going on. And so I spent the entire show pacing backstage, talking to people about what was happening. And then it would be my turn to go back out on stage. And when I was backstage, I, I could make it feel a little bit better by talking to people and by drinking water and by running through my mantras and running through my breathing exercises and my grounding exercises. But the second I would step back out on stage, it was back, 100%. I would be right back in it. And it, it lasted the entire show. And I... I didn't wow. have an understudy go in. I just kept going back out. And every time I would be back on, on stage, it would be the same thing. My brain would just be screaming, why are you doing this? And I would be like, I got to finish the job, you know? And so I would pinch my leg. And I was I was muttering to myself under my breath on stage. Um, thank God, like, nobody heard <laughs> me. I was muttering to myself, like, 
good job. You're doing great. You're doing great. You're doing really well. Just this is you're you're halfway through. Like you're doing great. And I got to the end of the show. My parents were at this show and I I came up to them afterward at the stage door and I just was like, were you aware at all that I was having a panic attack the entire time? And they were like, no, (laughs) it didn't look like it at all. And they said, if anything, we thought this was one of your best performances. Austin was able to keep acting, but he was relying on drugs and alcohol to get through the day. It wasn't healthy. Um, I self-medicated my anxiety for years with drugs and alcohol. Drugs and alcohol are this really deceptive medicine because if you have a panic disorder or an anxiety disorder, alcohol sometimes feels like the only time you don't feel terrified. I was never the kind of alcoholic who woke up first thing in the morning and needed to have a few shots to steady my nerves and like get through the day. I usually started drinking around 4 or 5 p.m. I would like wait through the day and then start around there and then I would go into late into the night. But I still drank heavily and daily. But I would spend the morning and early afternoon shaking, short of breath and nervous and riddled with anxiety and depression. And then once I started drinking it, it felt like the only time of the day that I had relief. And it's the same with marijuana. I found marijuana and that, that helped me eat. I talked about eating. Smoking weed helped me keep food down and eat food and not vomit. And so I thought I had found these really great medicines that not only helped me, but were also like fun and felt good and were a good time to do with friends and were a good time to do anywhere on the beach, on a hike. Uh, at the movies, going dancing, going to sing karaoke, just walking around on the street. I loved drinking and doing drugs. It didn't ever occur to me in all the years that I was doing it that I was exacerbating the problem with my anxiety, that I was making it worse. I, I never connected two and two. I never thought that it's it's, it's such a weird um, substance, substance mm-hmm. use disorder is such a weird disease because what it is is people trying to treat generalized discomfort. It's no respecter of how much money you have or where you were raised, who your parents were, what your religion was growing up. It affects all kinds of people. Uh, The human condition is to experience some sort of existential dread and discomfort. And the way that a lot of people wind up treating that is with drugs and alcohol. And then they usually wind up developing some kind of dependence uh, disorder with their medicine. Because it's not prescribed and it's not used in a medicinal way. It's, it's, it's abused and misused. It never occurred to me that what I was doing was literally like pumping my body full of depressants every night to like suppress the anxiety and the panic. And then like waking up and being confused as to why I was so depressed when I was literally like pumping myself full of depressants and suppressants. And then I'd be depressed and I would also be in a state of withdrawal because I drank so much and so heavily that any hour that I was sober, I was shaking and I was uh, dehydrated and always tired, always sick, always always had a headache, always had a stomach ache. The only time I felt good is when I was drunk and, and high which is what keeps you using, but it doesn't occur to you that like an actual long-term solution, an actual solution is to get off the medicine, like get, stop, stop using Mm. it and, and, and detox and get regulated. And that was one of the big things that helped me get sober is I met someone who had the same condition as me, who, who used to have daily panic attacks. And they said that they got sober and that their panic attacks completely went away. And I went and asked them after the meeting, I was like, I was like, is that true? Did you used to have daily panic attacks? And they said, yeah. And I said, now you don't. They said, yeah, they're gone. And I was like, well, if that's possible, then that's enough reason for me to do it right there. 
And so I did wind up getting sober. And for about the first year and a half that I was sober, I didn't have any panic attacks. And also my suicidal ideation, which is something I had lived with for over a decade, uh, pretty much just wanting to commit suicide every day, that was also gone. I, I didn't want to kill myself anymore and I didn't have daily panic attacks. And it was like, it was like a miracle. Like it was, it was like I, I was completely healed. And then, yeah, the pandemic brought a lot of it back. Are, is it that the pandemic bringing it back or is it that you're afraid of catching COVID and dying or what's the, what do you feel like is the, the trigger there? I think the pandemic has done a lot more subconscious psychological harm than a lot of people even realize yet. And I'm, I'm just starting to realize it. Anytime someone coughs and everyone looks over their shoulder, you can feel that collective unease. You know, we're two years in and that's calmed down a little bit out there. But I don't know if you remember that first six months of COVID was like going out to go do things. There was just a hum in the air of like you could just feel a palpable panic in the air. I saw people getting into fights in lines. People were constantly at each other's throats and up each, up in each other's faces and yelling at each other because there was just a an anxiety in the air that everyone was was swimming in. What's weird looking back on it is like, it's not that much different than any other time. We live in the age of nuclear weapons. There's just always mm -hmm. threats outside of our control. But when you're living in a global pandemic where it's all anyone's talking about is this invisible, uncontrollable thing that's wiping millions of people out, seething with it, whether they're upset about mandates or whether they're like mad about masks or whether they're terrified about the virus. Everyone's got this collective panic. You know, you've talked about the pandemic, which obviously is like a big deal. I'm wondering if you could talk about sort of the trajectory that your career has had over the past year and any role that anxiety um, may have played into it as like a benefit or a hindrance. So my career over the last few years has taken a huge turn for the better. I found an audience on social media uh, in the pandemic. A lot of people did. Uh, the pandemic closed a lot of live performance spaces. And my whole life, I've been a live performer in front of audiences. And I, I haven't been on stage in three years, which is really weird for me. Um, but I've been in front of this online audience that's been growing and growing and growing. It's done wonders for my acting career. Like I, I book a lot more acting work now because people know who I am and it's been helping out a lot. There are more people who are listening to my music now than have ever been listening to my music. There's more people listening to my podcast. There's so many things that have come with having an online audience. Austin has gained popularity from his music and his podcast, and he's been getting a steady amount of acting work. But with the added attention has come some added challenges. With that also, there's a new dimension to my anxiety and to my panic that I've never had before, which is that there are like real stakes now with my career. Before, I was a nobody and I was obscure and I was poor. Now, there's a lot on the line and there's people that expect things of me and there's people that uh, need me to be a certain thing for them. And if I'm having a bad time, I try to be honest with my audience about where I am so that they're aware of what's going on in my life. But I have this experience every time I have a video go viral, every time there's a video that's getting millions of views where like I'm simultaneously excited because it means growth. It means that I'm going to get a lot more followers, which means I get to have more bargaining with brands that I work with. And uh, it means that I'll probably get to make more money and, and keep this job for a little while longer. But it also means that in those, in that, those few days when a video is going viral, there's like a lot of eyeballs on me. There's a lot of new people coming in and there's a lot of 
new opinions coming in. And most of what I get is positive feedback. But one thing that comes with having an online audience is like, I am acutely aware, I was always aware that there, of course, are going to be people who don't like me and don't like what I do. Um, But now I'm really aware of it. Now I'm really aware that there are a lot of people out there who like, who are not going to be shy about telling me that they think I am bad at what I do and that I'm a hack or that I am uh, ugly or that I'm bad at music or that, you know, like, and that's what, what comes with it. And my work is to try to stay out of that and just like stay out of the comments and stuff. It just comes with a whole, a whole new layer. But I, I have this new, this new anxiety, which is that like, this thing that I found, this new dimension to my career is going to be lost. It's going, I'm going to do something. Something's going to happen. I'm going to say the wrong thing in a video. I'm going to offend someone in some way, or someone from my past is going to come forward and be like, I worked with this guy on a play 10 years ago and he was really rude to me. And he's like, and like, they're going to be like, oh my God, he's so toxic. Or, you know, like, I don't know. I know that I have a lot of wreckage in (laughs) my past from just years of being a sick person dealing with substance use disorder and, and all this stuff. And like, I've tried to make amends to the people who I know I've done harm to, but in that process, I'm also aware that like, there are probably so many people who I've harmed who I'm not even aware of. And being a public person means that at any point, one of them, if they're harboring a resentment for something could come forward and be like, this guy did this or said this. And like, my career could be effectively over. So there's, there's this new dimension to my anxiety where I'm like, I'm so thankful to have an audience. I'm so grateful to be in the position that I'm in, but I'm also like, there's, there's stakes now. Since like all this trajectory has, has gone up and to the right, like how are your panic attacks now? They're, they're few and far between, but they're, they're, they're still there. So they came back with the pandemic and, um, in the last year or two, I've probably had like five panic attacks total all but one were pretty manageable. All but all but one were like, they were there, but I got through what I needed to get through. My panic attacks over the last couple of years have been related to flying and the dentist mostly and um, performing at my job. Like later this month, I'm performing in Las Vegas live. Wow. I'm kind of terrified about it. I, I've been performing live my entire life, but I haven't been in front of an audience in three years. And I'm kind of terrified to go do that. I loved when you were talking about Newsies that you were talking kindly to yourself. I was wondering if you could just touch on like, what is your inner monologue? This is something I've really been working on in sobriety and um, over the last few years because I had a really bad habit of talking to myself in a very not kind way. I was very, very hard on myself for most of my adult life. What sort of things would you say to yourself? Uh, just calling myself an idiot and calling myself like a like anytime I made a little mistake, just being like, God, you are so fucking stupid. Like, I can't believe you're so fucking stupid. Like, why are you like this? Why, you know, telling myself that I'm like a bad person, that like like doing something that like hurts someone else and being like, wow, you're such a piece of shit. Like, what is wrong with you? You know, making a mistake where like I snap at someone and yell at someone and then just like, you know, I was, I, I really didn't like myself. I, I, um, I hated myself for a really long time and that's, I was very suicidal and, um, didn't feel like I deserved to like myself. I felt like people who liked themselves were a little bit delusional and like my disease is, it's ego, it's, it's a form of self-obsession, it's, it's a form of narcissism. Like whenever I'm making myself out to be like the villain in a situation, I'm really centralizing myself in the situation as like, 
I'm the reason why this happened the way it happened. Even if I'm not like the hero mm-hmm. or the protagonist, I'm making myself a centralized character. I'm making myself like really important as like this happened because I'm such a cosmically evil person. And it's a form of of letting the ego run wild. And what I really need to do is like get get into the habit of like absolving myself of a lot of the things that happened in my life because I don't actually control it. I'm not the one who's like writing the script. I'm not the one who's like running the show and giving myself a break that I'm really just here experiencing things and doing my best. And so I made a conscious practice in sobriety of one of my mantras that I tell myself a lot when I'm in the morning meditating and 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 praying is I tell myself I thank myself for taking the time to be there. I always say like thank you. Thank you for showing up. I know you don't like doing this. I know that this is hard for you. So thank you for taking the time. I tell myself I love myself. I look at myself in the mirror and I say like, "Hey, I love you. You're 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 working really hard." And I see that and um I just want you to know like I'm really proud of you. Like I'm you know, and it's if you're listening to this right now and you think it sounds cheesy, it is. It's so cheesy. It's so corny. But it, <laughs> you need to do it. Like it, it works. I, I try to be gentle with myself. When I have victories, I celebrate. When I, when I make it through a particularly rough stretch of anxiety or a panic attack, or when I have an event that I'm worried about that comes up and that I'm worried I'm going to freak out at, and I don't freak out and I'm able to get through it, I celebrate that shit. I take myself out. I get like a nice meal. I'm like, yes, yes, yes. I make sure to thank whoever it is or whatever it is that I pray to for helping me. I just try to stay thankful and stay positive. And I have to fight against it because it's always still there. Every time I make a mistake, every time I I drop the ball or um, am short with someone or something like that, my old self-critical voice is right there. It, it's right there being like, you piece of shit, you idiot. Or every time I, you know, I, I step outside the house and I forget my mail key and I was going down to the mailbox and I didn't bring the mail key with me. And that voice is right there like, what's wrong with you, dude, idiot? you moron. And I have to stop myself and be like, (laughs) no, it's just, I was thinking about something else. It's okay. We're not doing that. I'm not, you know, I'm not going in there and beating myself up about something as stupid as like, I left the mail key in the apartment. I'll just go back and get it. And, uh, trying to just be easier and softer with myself has helped a lot. Um, but it's a practice. It is something I have to do every day. And especially when it feels corny and cheesy and when it feels like I don't want to do it that's especially when I have to do it there's no one else around and I'm looking at myself in the mirror going hey good job today bud I love you good job you're you're doing hard stuff and you're making it and I feel super corny and I feel like I'm like a character in some kind of self-help book or something but I'm like hey whatever whatever we're trying to survive so uh if this helps then let's do it and that was Austin Archer I'm honestly kind of amazed that he's able to work through his panic disorder and maintain his career as an entertainer. Austin just tackles the panic head-on, and it works for him. I don't know if I'm strong enough to do that, TBH. TBH? God, I'm such a boomer. Anyway, you can find Austin on social media at yourpal underscore Austin, stream his music on Spotify, and check out his podcast, People Pleaser, with Austin Archer. All right, friends of Gil, you know the drill. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you subject yourself to it. And if you want unlimited Gilly points, leave a five-star review. Until next time, be kind to yourself. His name is Gil, and he's mentally ill. Mentally Gil is executive produced and hosted by me, Gil Kruger. 
Executive produced by Zach Stewart-Pontier. Produced and edited by Melissa Demons and Diane Kang of Diamond Emprint Productions. Post-production sound by Sam Baer. Theme song and ad break music by Austin Archer, a.k.a. the guy you just heard me interview. This has been a Best Regards Media production. 